Welcome to episode four of Good Grief, a podcast dedicated to having a real and honest conversation about mourning and loss. Each episode is based on a theme that we'll unpack with expert interviews, novice slice-of-life anecdotes, and where appropriate, some relevant cultural references. Full disclosure, at the beginning of 2018, I lost my mom to a very brief but brutal fight with lung cancer. She was 57. We were incredibly close, and I was pretty lost without her. For now, this podcast is mostly a journal of my personal experience. I hope that it can be helpful for you because it truly has been helpful for me. From what I've learned, this process can be excruciatingly painful alone, but I think if we take some time to share our stories and lend our ears, we can all walk away with some good grief. This week's theme, catharsis. Poured a little bourbon out for you Got scolded on the porch for wasting booze Said it was something kids might have to do At my mom's memorial, there was this table covered in pictures of her. And while that is in and of itself not uncommon, the quality of the photos certainly was. My mom was excruciatingly beautiful her entire life. And she'd been in the photo industry for 35 years. Though the vast majority of her career was on the business side of the lens, like many women of her generation, she got involved in photography for being in front of the camera. So not only was she objectively good-looking, she was constantly around incredibly talented photographers. Up until the day she passed, she easily looked 10 years younger than she was. But not in that sad way that many women her age do as they frantically attempt to duck time's cruel reach. She didn't have that unsettling, absent, Botoxed sheen. She was just sort of ageless. As I stood there, scanning over the shotgun blast of nostalgia, I realized that it was much easier to determine what year it was by how I had aged rather than how she had. One photo stood out, though. Maybe it's because it was an 85 and 11 image of me shirtless, with about a third of the tattoos that I now have covering my torso, but I think it's because the photo showed something about the way that my mom and I connected. It was from the top of Griffith Park, my mom sitting on a stone park bench in yoga pants, sunglasses on her head looking out over Hollywood, and me, slightly underweight with a shaved head, I'd been struggling to come back from an ugly eating disorder when the photo had been taken and I'd cut off all my brittle hair in an attempt to Delilah anorexia's Samson, trying to remove all traces of the disease's hold on me. We'd go on this hike a lot back then, and as we covered the thousand-foot climb after my mom got off work, I'd do my best to show that I was stable. Me feeling comfortable enough to take my shirt off in public was actually a big step back then. We had the same expression on our faces looking out in the same direction. My stepdad, who had taken the photo, was standing next to me at the memorial, so I pointed to it and I asked him if he remembered that day. And he said, you two were doing your endorphin rush thing. I don't get it. You know I don't get it, but you guys, that was your drug of choice. And he was right. My mom and I shared a deep love for training. Not just working out, but training. Striving to be better. Pushing past where you were the day before. Don't worry, this isn't going to turn into a pitch for my fat loss app or some skinny mushroom tea. This is authentic. For my mom, it was yoga. And with every practice, she sought to get better. 
in the days when we used to hike in the park, we had this saying, fuck you, I'm not my job. The idea was that as long as we got out and broke a sweat, we were investing in our own value. We were saying that even though our bosses may not think so, we are worth more than the sum of our corporate productivity. For both of us, training was an objective and indisputable metric for intrinsic worth and accomplishment. For us, those workouts were a conversation that we were having with our own body. It was a therapy session with ourselves. It's part of why her stay in the hospital was so frustrating, actually. Being intubated and heavily medicated, she struggled to communicate over the noise of her treatment. But maybe the bigger blow was that she couldn't connect with herself the way that she did when she moved. Out where the stones lay like bones by the ocean. Out where the waves crash contempt on the land. Someone was trembling for fear of the tempest. Somebody silently reached for their hand. Said understand that if you're cold I'll keep you warm. Catharsis is the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions, often fear, pity, shame, or hurt. Catharsis is the basis for Freudian psychoanalysis, that by revisiting some repressed trauma, you can alleviate the hold that it has on you and relieve your pain. On paper, catharsis and grief make a lot of sense together. In the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, perhaps the most widely accepted documentation of the grieving process, anger is the third stage after shock and denial. And it's not uncommon to have irrational resentful feelings towards doctors or family members or anyone who appears to be happy or maybe just the world at large and express this anger through some sort of catharsis like crying or hitting a pillow or recording a podcast or fighting a bear. It can just really make you feel better. Sometimes. See, there have been studies done that with men in particular, there's a 50% chance that exercising their rage or pain or grief will actually just amplify whatever they're feeling. It's literally like pouring gas on a fire for some people. And there are also plenty of cathartic activities that are super unhealthy, like cutting or bulimia. These behaviors activate the sympathetic nervous system, thereby releasing a bunch of pain-masking chemicals in the body that ultimately make you feel sort of superhuman. These are, of course, extremes. And for most of us, my mom and I included, exercise is an incredibly positive form of catharsis. Earlier, when I mentioned that exercise is like a therapy session with your own body, I wasn't just being hyperbolic or poetic. In a study performed at Duke University, researchers found that exercise alone outperformed medications and placebos as an antidepressant. This isn't just a result of a spike in self-esteem because your gym selfie over-indexes likes on Instagram. This is actually a chemical process that your brain has adopted to help you survive. While you're exercising, your brain chemistry actually changes, blood flow increases, and the brain releases endorphins and a big dose of serotonin. Serotonin, if you don't know, is your brain's natural feel-good juice. It's the chemical released when people take ecstasy and MDMA. In fact, most prescription antidepressants like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxol, and Lexapro are in a category called Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, SSRIs for short. That essentially slow down your brain's reuptake of serotonin. When you work out, you are literally self-medicating.
I've been training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu off and on for five years with a few big gaps in there due to a few catastrophic injuries. For those of you who do not know, Jiu-Jitsu is a grappling martial art popularized by the dominance of the Gracie family in the early days of the UFC. At the time, the sport of MMA was seen as little more than human cockfighting. The champions of the sport resembled pharmaceutical experiments, roided out bar bouncers, far more than professional athletes. Enter Hoist Gracie, who at 6'1 and 175 pounds was an unlikely contender. He dominated the tournament, submitting opponents twice his size with grace and ease, and most importantly, with jujitsu. Something you should know about people who train jujitsu is they typically love to talk about training jujitsu. So I'll do my best to keep this section brief, but no promises. Unlike many popular martial arts, almost every time you take a jujitsu class, you engage in live full contact sparring, rolling as it's known. There are no katas, no forms. You simply drill the techniques you are learning with a partner under the guidance of an instructor. Belt promotions are not based on your ability to memorize a sequence of punches and kicks against an imaginary attacker, rather how well you're able to learn and apply techniques against knowledgeable opponents while rolling. The sport is a huge part of my life. I typically train five to six times a week and compete several times throughout the year. When my mom was in the ICU, she even wrote me a message telling me it was okay if I needed to go leave the hospital and train for a bit. She knew that it was the medicine I needed because it was the medicine she herself craved, part of the bond that we shared. Days after she passed, I returned home and went to the gym. I had let my professor and his wife know what was happening and they had been very generous with their support. As I walked into the academy, every one of my training partners offered their condolences. Thanks to the hyper-mediated existence we now live in, everyone had seen what had happened on Facebook or Instagram, which created a bizarre but welcome sense of comfort knowing that I wouldn't have to repeat the words, my mom just died to everyone I ran into. More on that in a, in a future episode. My first day back, my professor called me out to spar with him, a pretty common occurrence with us. The round timer sounded, we slapped hands, and we began a very lopsided game of human chess. My mind let go of the trauma, if only for a moment, and became completely consumed with the exchange, with surviving, with the perfect counterattack, with the sound of my own labored breath over my mouthpiece. When the round ended, I sat there in space for a while, on my knees, my mind still tumbling in the current of chokes and sweeps. I felt my professor's hand on my shoulder and heard him say, this is a good place for your pain. A month later, I placed second in a local tournament, beating out a 10-man bracket of guys who were 8 to 10 pounds bigger than me. Pictures of myself on the podium look a little like I'm competing in my big brother's weight class. I've always been a smaller middleweight, but with everything going on, I had leaned out even more than normal. As I walked into the parking lot, everything began to slow down. The shock wore off, and I became incredibly sad knowing that I could not share this fuck you, I'm not my job moment with the one person who really understand why, as a grown-ass man, I still felt compelled to throw myself into these wars. Wish I could write songs. 
One thing that I struggle with about my mom's final days was that she was completely cogent. There wasn't a, a gradual decline. We literally turned a corner and she fell off a fucking cliff. She was just as much a part of the decision-making process in those final days as we were. Filling out her own will, listing the people that she wanted to fly in for her final visits, and ultimately, the choice to remove her breathing and feeding tubes. To shut down the machines that were keeping her alive. The decision to let go? That was hers. It was perfectly my mom. She assessed her options and ultimately decided that she wasn't going to live beholden to life support in the patients of hospital staff. This last decision was the ultimate fuck you, I'm not my job moment. And it was, in many ways, an act of rebellion. The weeks we'd grappled with doctors and specialists keeping track of every medication and treatment option and lab test and biopsy report because none of the doctors would talk to each other. No one would project manage my mom's treatment. It was also frustrating that, in a way, her decision to go was a rejection of what they could offer her after they had let her get this far. My mom had one wish that we could not fulfill, and to this day, I feel pretty guilty about it. Even though I'm quite sure that it probably would have killed her, she wanted to go outside one last time, to feel the sun on her skin and the wind in her hair the way we had on our hikes in Griffith Park all those years ago. This has been episode four of Good Grief. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, I, I just want to mention that while the strategies for coping with grief that I talk about in this podcast have worked for me, I am not a trained professional. I'm just a guy with a liberal arts degree who spends a lot of time on the internet. If you or someone you know is going through a hard time, please do not hesitate to seek professional help uh, of a doctor or a clinician. Um, I just, just want you to know that uh, these things work for me, but it's important to really talk to professionals if you're experiencing serious depression. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or you just want to talk, feel free to reach out on Twitter or Instagram at Blake of Today, or just shoot me an email at blakeoftoday at gmail.com. I'll leave you with this line from one of my mom's favorite Leonard Cohen songs, Chelsea Hotel. And clenching your fist for the ones like us who are oppressed by the figures of beauty. You fixed yourself. You said, well, never mind. We are ugly, but we have the music. Take care of yourselves. Said, well.